Welcome to the Semper Reformatic Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Hi, good evening, everyone. And we're going to read from Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Looking back, yes, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. It says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, that brings me to this catechism class which I've brought ample selections of outside so that you can hand them out to people who are not here. Um... I'm still working on Lord's Day 15, question 37, in the other place. And I'm asking, what do we mean by the word suffered? But I'm asking this week, who suffered? And I'm recalling the words of a hymn um, by, I think, Charles Wesley, that says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? And somewhere in that hymn, there comes the words, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So my question is, because Jesus is fully God and fully man, and because he died for us on the cross, does that mean that God died at the cross? Same as what says in that hymn. One of the reasons why we don't sing hymns. Uh, Because good hymnology is not always good theology. So um, that's what the catechism class is about. Um, When Jesus died on the cross, did did God die? We learn in the scriptures that our God is from everlasting to everlasting. And he is unchanging. And he is immutable. So how do we reconcile the two? Well, that's what you learn if you pick that up this evening. I hope that's helpful. It's good to know Christian doctrine. And it's good to know what you believe. And it's good to know why you believe it. Okay, Acts chapter 23. And verse 1. Oh, we'll read from chapter 22 and verse 30, actually, just to set some context. I don't like to start reading a chapter beginning with and, because and always means there's something that's happened beforehand. So Acts chapter 22 and verse 30. On the morrow, because Paul would have known the certainty wherewith he was, because the centurion or the, the, the officer would have known the, cer- the certainty, Wherewith he was accused of by the, of the Jews, he loosed Paul from his bands, and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, "Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day." And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. 
Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thy whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Well, we'll pause there. Last week, we saw Paul narrowly avoiding being flogged to death by Roman soldiers. He's already been tied down and prepared for the almost fatal beating, the almost certainly fatal beating, when he turned to the officer in charge and asked if it was legal to flog a a Roman citizen without trial. And of course it wasn't. And realising that he's in danger of a serious breach of Roman law, the commander untied him, from the flogging chair, put him into the prison in chains overnight, and the next day, with the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, summoned together, he was brought before the council, the Jewish council, to explain to the commander what it was that this man had said that had caused such a riot in the temple square. So Acts chapter 22 and verse 30, where we began reading, uh, clears that for us, clears that up for us. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty, the certainty wherewith he was accused of the Jews, the commander wanted to know exactly what this dispute is about. So he loosed him from his bonds and commanded his chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before him. Now, what happens next is of great importance to us. Paul is a Christian, and he's standing before a hostile group of men. A sheep in the midst of a pack of 
vicious wolves who will literally tear him apart if they're given the chance. So in this little passage of scripture, we can glean about what Jesus taught his disciples about situations like this. And we'll see Paul putting that teaching of Christ into practice. And then finally, we'll draw some important lessons for ourselves from what we have learned. So I want you to turn in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 10. Do we see what Jesus said to his disciples who would be in exactly the same position as Paul is in in this passage? And it's Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, and for testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver the brother up to death, and the father the child. And the children shall raise up against, rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus had been sending his twelve disciples out into an openly hostile world where they would have to witness and work for him and declare the good news of the gospel. And he's warning them that this gospel activity, standing up for Christ, taking the gospel message, the message of sin and the broken law and forgiveness at the cross, taking that to people, that activity will not be welcomed. He's already told them in this passage that when they come into a town where the people reject the message, they are to wipe the dust of that place off the soles of their feet. They're to depart and go elsewhere. And then we come to this really interesting verse and section of the scripture where where, where Jesus uses a series of similes, descriptive comparisons of the forces in the conflict. And he never sugarcoats the cost of discipleship. And I, I, I was interested, we were at a meeting yesterday, Sam and Anna was there, and, and Raymond, and I said to, I said to the, Sam and Anna earlier on, one of the phrases from that meeting that has stayed in my mind is the fact that Christians seem to be living in this world like atheists, more interested in 
pleasures in this world than glorifying God in our lives. You see, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the cost of discipleship. Look at Matthew 10 and 22. And he tells us there, Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Now, you know, that's not the kind of Christianity that we have in the world today. We have relevant Christianity. And we have cultural acceptance. Those are the sought-after attributes of the church. We have seeker-friendliness and sensitivity. But yet Jesus said to his disciples, if you're living for me, if you're living for my glory, if you're living for the glory of God, then this world will actually hate you. He likens the Christian and the world as opposing personalities. And he uses these metaphors from the animal kingdom so that no one will be in any doubt. He talks about sheep and wolves. You can't get much different. He's talking about the difference between believers and the world. It seems almost like these believers are going to be easy prey for ravenous wild animals. Matthew Henry points out here that the purpose of Christ's words here is not to over-frighten us, such as the ways of the world is today, but to encourage us to depend on him for our protection. Just as a sheep is helpless before the wolf, and just as a sheep has to wholly and completely depend on the shepherd, so we must depend on Christ to protect his flock, and he will. And he also uses another little metaphor. He talks about serpents and doves, another illustration, to make us think of how we will present ourselves to the world. He's talking about us, about our own attitude when trials come, when it happens that we find ourselves dragged before councils and governors and kings for the sake of Christ. He's already warned us. They will deliver you up to councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. How are you going to behave? He says that we are to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as a dove. Of course, when we think about serpents, we're a bit cautious. Um, We think about a serpent and we link it back to the Garden of Eden, where the devil is portrayed as a serpent. It's Jesus saying that we're to be like the world like the devil, in the way that we react to persecution. No, he's telling us that we should be equal to the minions of this world, the devil's disciples in this world, in our grasp of what is going on. Christians should be harmless. They should be meek. They should be humble. But we're not taught in the Bible that we should be naive. And we're not taught in the Bible that we should be stupid or that we should sit back and be walked over. 
We must be as harmless as doves, but we must be as wise as the people of this world are. Now, I wonder, did this dire warning put the disciples off? Not at all. Uh, Christianity is not for softies. You're going to be hated by the world. There's going to be a challenge. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. He said in John 15 and verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So Jesus has warned us that we will stand before councils and we will have to give account. Right, let's go back to chapter 23 in the book of Acts. Let's see that put into practice. The conflict occurs. Acts chapter 23, verse 1 to 10. And Paul is facing this pack of wolves. People sometimes assume that sheep are not terribly clever. Animals like them, they can play follow my leader to their own destruction. I remember one time helping someone to write a funeral tribute for a woman who had died. And I asked her about the personality of, of, of this lady and about her character. And the relative replied to me, well, she certainly was not a sheep. And I said, do you mean she wasn't a Christian? Oh, no, I don't mean that, she says. I just mean that she didn't just mindlessly do what everybody else did. But when Jesus warned his disciples that we should be sheep in the midst of wolves, he wasn't talking about that. He tells us that we are to be mild and meek, as harmless as doves, at the same time to be wise. Jesus was speaking about our vulnerability, not about the fact that we are blindly following each other. We're described as sheep because we are vulnerable to attack from the world. We're warring not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this world, against dark forces that are arraigned against us. So in Matthew chapter 16, again, Jesus says, Beware of men. For they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in your synagogues and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Now, it's time for Paul to follow the advice of his saviour and be as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove for he's a vulnerable Christian sheep standing before a council of wolves. Let's see how he does it. And we learn lessons for ourselves. First thing, he demands equal respect. There are far too many people today who when they hear about Christians, the first thing they do is laugh. It's scorn. I wonder have you ever watched any television programs where there's like a, a murder mystery or something? One of these things you see occasionally on TV and you'll find that there's a Christian in it. What's he portrayed as? Hmm? Silly vicar. Cult. 
somebody who's way out in the fringes of society. That's the way the world wants to think of Christians. Dinosaurs. Bible thumpers. Paul goes into the council and he's standing before them and earnestly beholding, verse 1, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day, and the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Why? You see, Paul has demanded equal respect. It's a bold opening statement. He begins his defense before the Sanhedrin by addressing them as his equals. You are no better than me. Brethren is a term used to speak to someone of equal rank. The normal mode of address when somebody was brought before the assembly would be something like rulers of the people and elders of Israel. You would have to bow before these people and, and, and be very respectful to them. But Paul speaks to them as an equal. After all, he's been brought up as one of them. He's been a scholar in Jerusalem. He even acted on their behalf when he persecuted the Christians. He stands before them and he demands equal respect. Now, I think if there's one thing the church has to do today, it's we have to demand that equal respect. So the high priest commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. I think I prefer to say Ananias wasn't too impressed with Paul's opening remarks. Strike him on the mouth. Now we don't know how that was done. Was it with a hand? Was it with a fist? Was it with a rod? There would be prison officers on either side of him, men standing by, and the high priest commands them to strike Paul and to punish him for his impudent words, but to strike an Israelite on the face is forbidden under the law. Spurgeon points out here, though, that, that to strike a man when he is simply pleading his own defense is a particularly atrocious thing to do, even in a pagan society. But then we remember that Jesus was smitten also. John 18 and verse 20. Jesus answered and said, I speak openly to the world. I taught in the synagogue and in the temple whether the Jews always revert, resort and in secret have I hid nothing. Have I said nothing? Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Paul didn't physically retaliate. Remember, he's to be as harmless as a dove. It's not for God's servant to strike back. That doesn't mean he shouldn't defend himself. His words of defense are full of passion as he recovers from this cruel blow. Look at verse 3. Then Paul said unto him, and so then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, 
Thy whitened wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. It's a deep rebuke. And here's why. A whitened wall in those days was a tomb. The Jews generally avoided tombs. They didn't frequently visit cemeteries. Dead bodies to a Jewish man were regarded as unclean, especially those who were under the obligations of a vow. So they painted them white. They whitewashed them, whitewashed sepulchres, so that that they would see the whitewash and they would know there was a tomb and they would stay away. Calling the high priest a white wall is saying that he's a tomb that he's nice and bright on the outside, but inwardly he's full of death and he's full of putrefaction and he's stinking on the inside. Who would dare to speak to the high priest like that? So verse 4 says, They that stood by said, Revilest thy God's high priest. Look at Paul's reply. It's interesting. Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. Now, what's going on there? Because the high priest is sitting in front of him. Let's think about this for a minute. Paul's a Jew. He's been brought up as a Pharisee. He was once part of this outfit. He's bound to know who Ananias was. And the man was chairing the meeting of the Sanhedrin. He's sitting in the position of the high priest. And he can, you can have no doubt that because he was such an important person, he would be wearing his official robes of office for such an important occasion. It would be like standing in the St. Peter's Square in Rome. And this man comes out onto the balcony and he's all dressed in white. And he's got a wee white hat on. And he starts leaning over the balcony and doing something like this. And you'd be talking to the person next to you. And somebody will tap you in the shoulder. And you'll say, excuse me, would you be quiet please? Because the Pope's addressing the crowd. And you'll say, is that the Pope? I never even knew it was the Pope. How could you say that when you were where you were? when the man was standing in front of you, when he was dressed as the Pope, when he was speaking as the Pope. What Paul is doing here is employing sarcasm. You see, Ananias, the high priest, historically we learn, was a poor example of a human being. Never mind the high priest. The high priests in Jerusalem were appointed by the Romans. The only qualification for being a high priest in those days was that you had to be a Jew. Ananias was a robber, a thief. He was a glutton. He was a traitor. He was a Roman quisling. And yet here he is in all his priestly robes standing before Paul telling him that he what he can say and what he can't say. And this man says, how dare you speak like that to the high priest? And Paul says, high priest? You call him the high priest? I didn't know he was a high priest. It's 
condemnation by cynicism. And it goes further. Verse 6. When Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he said so, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the Sanhedrin now is comprised of these two diverse groups. They're at opposite ends of the doctrinal spectrum. You've got the Pharisees who believe in the written and the oral law, who believe in angels and who believe in spirits. You've got the Sadducees who only believe in the Torah, the written law, who don't believe in angels, don't believe in spirits, and who are far too cosy with the Romans for the Pharisees' liking. But the most important difference between those two groups of Jews is that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees don't. And Paul claimed, I'm only here because I believe that a man can rise from the dead. That's exactly what he'd been teaching. Do you remember what we learnt about Athens? When the, Jew, when the Greeks there heard him speaking about Jesus and the resurrection, and he th- they thought at first that he was bringing some strange new God. Paul continually spoke and taught about the fact that we have a risen Savior. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, he said, If the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. For if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. This man believes in the resurrection of the dead. So do we, Pharisees. And all of a sudden, the place is an uproar. The riot that had been raging out in the temple court now spills into the very council itself. Paul seems to have this great knack of aggravating the Jews. He has this tactic. He's wise as a serpent. Look, he's employing the ways that these people employed themselves. He's using divide and conquer tactics. Now, I'm not saying we're to use the ways of the world in Christian evangelism or in Christian apologetics. What I'm saying is we're to be wise to what they're doing. And we're to be as wise and as smart as they are. We're not to be naive. The result of that is that he is very quickly removed. He's brought to a place of relative safety. Now, let's finish. What can we learn from that? What have we seen? Well, we have seen the words of Jesus instructing his disciples. We have seen how Paul put that teaching into practice. What can we learn? Well, the obvious lesson is that we are sheep, vulnerable to an open, concerted, determined attack from this hostile world. That's always been the case. 
in every age, in every culture. And in some cultures that will be a life and death issue. Wolves are vicious. Their attacks are deliberate and they only have one, one aim, and that's to kill and destroy. But the second lesson that we learn is that there is a promise. A wonderful promise given to us in times of persecution. And it's given in that passage in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 19 that we read. It says this. When they deliver you up, it's not if. When they deliver you up, take no thought of how ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour. I wonder in that day when Paul stood before the Sanhedrin. Did he realize that God the Holy Spirit was standing, was directing his thoughts and forming his words and giving him guidance on what he would say? Third lesson is about wisdom. We're to be like serpents. And, you know, serpents get a bad name if they're, you're talking about the scorpion type things that you see in the desert. They don't really want to attack you. What they want to do is to scuttle away if they see you coming and hide behind a stone, crawl in below a stone and hide. They only attack you because, they only sting you because you threaten them. Sometimes one of the hardest things is knowing when to stand up like Paul and boldly confront the wolves and when actually just to take evasive action walk away from them. And the fourth lesson, and perhaps the greatest lesson of all, is that whatever conflict we find ourselves in, whether we're serving God faithfully, wherever we're serving God faithfully, and we're being encircled by wolves, we can be absolutely sure that the Lord is with us. For it is the promise of Jesus in the Great Commission where he says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The conflict goes on. We still need to be aware of the fact that the difference between us and the world around us is that we are vulnerable as sheep in the midst of an encircling pack of wolves. And we still need to be sure that in that situation we need to be as harmless as doves and as wise as serpents, knowing that whenever we speak, the Lord will be with us, will direct our thoughts and our words and enable us to hold fast when we trust in him. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.